Good morning. Let us stand and begin our time hearing from God's word. Psalm 106 says, both we and our fathers have sinned. We've committed iniquity. We have done wickedness. Our fathers, when they were in Egypt, did not consider your wondrous works. They did not remember the abundance of your steadfast love, but rebelled by the sea, at the Red Sea. Yet he saved them for his name's sake, that he might make known his mighty power. He rebuked the Red Sea, and it became dry, and he led them through the deep as through a desert. So he saved them from the hand of the foe and redeemed them from the power of the enemy. And the waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Let's say this aloud together. They believed his words. They sang his praise. Oh, how forgetful we can be. We often live, work, and even worship as if God hasn't done that much for us. And that is part of why we gather each week to confess that forgetfulness and to remind ourselves and others what the Lord has done. So we sing, sing to remember. We sing to rehearse. We sing to repeat his mercies. Give to our God immortal praise. Mercy and truth are all his ways. Wonders of grace to him belong. Repeat his mercies in your soul. Give to the Lord. Give to the Lord of Lords renown. The King of Kings with glory crown. His mercies ever shall endure. When lords and kings are known no more. Sing of his wonders. Wonders of grace to him belong. Repeat his Shall reign no more. When death and sin shall reign no more. He saw that we were dead in sin, and there is pity worked within. His mercies ever shall endure. When death and sin shall reign no more. Wonders of grace to him belong. Repeat his mercies in your soul. His mercies ever shall endure. When death and sin shall reign no more. When death and sin shall reign no more. His Son with power to save from guilt and darkness and the grave. Wonders of grace to Him belong. Repeat His mercies in your soul. Repeat His mercies in your Jesus. 
a line we just sang. He sent his son with power to save from guilt and darkness and the grave. We should all be in hell right now. Because of your sin, because of my sin, each one of us should be experiencing God's eternal wrath in hell at this very moment. But here we are. Forgiven, accepted, and loved. Welcome to this gathering of Desert Springs Church. You can be seated. My name is Caleb Batchelor. I'm the youth and families minister here at the church. And this is your first time visiting with us. Thank you for coming. We are glad you are here. There'll be pastors up here at the end of the service who would love to get to know you and hear your story. So please come up and say hi. If you are visiting with us online this morning, thank you for tuning in. Uh, you can reach out to us at info at dscabq.com. We would be happy to answer any questions you might have. Well, DSC family, I've just got one announcement for you, and that's this. Men, make sure to sign up for the Gospel Men's Seminar this Saturday morning at 8.30 a.m. Josiah Bellflower, our missions minister, is going to be talking about how the gospel transforms our decision-making. We don't know what we're doing. We need direction. And we are going to be talking about that this Saturday, how we can rely on God's word for our decision-making. I'm confident that this Saturday we'll be able to help you do that better. A Zoom link will be sent out later this week for those who have signed up, so be looking for that, I hope to see you there. Well, let's take a moment and give to our God immortal praise. Will you pray with me? Father, you are the Lord, you alone, and you have created us to praise you. While we have not praised you as we should, you have seen us in the bondage of our sin, and by your grace and power, you have rescued us. You are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. We cannot repeat your mercies enough. We praise you for your saving grace. We also praise you for revealing yourself to us in your word. As we make decisions, we don't have to rely on our own wisdom. You have given us good statutes and commandments. We cannot repeat your mercies enough. We praise you for your revealing grace. And finally, we praise you for bringing us here to this gathering of Desert Springs Church. Through the power of your spirit, you will care for us in a unique way as we assemble this morning. And you will care for us until you bring us safely home, where we will fully delight in your presence in the new heavens and the new earth. We cannot repeat your mercies enough. We praise you for graciously dwelling with your people. We praise you, Lord, you alone, in your son's name, amen. Yes, he is worthy of our praise, and we have not always repeated his mercies as we should. So let us stand together and say this confession to the Lord as one. Lord, we have sinned without considering how much you love us. You see our sins more clearly than we can ourselves. Lord, you know when we are indifferent to your word, how often we forget to pray. The times we come unwillingly to worship, 
and yet we turn to you when we are in trouble. Lord, you know when we are untruthful and when we are evil of others. You see our anger and unfairness to our friends. You know how hard it is for us to forgive. Forgive us, make us clean, so that we can obey your call to take up our cross and follow Christ. Through Jesus Christ, our Lord, amen. And let us now sing praise to the God of our salvation. Praise to the Lord, the Almighty, the King of creation. Oh, my soul, praise Him, for He is your health and salvation. Come on, here, now to His temple, draw near. Join me in glad
sound from his people again. Gladly forever adore Yes, let the amen sound from his people again, whether in praise or in prayer. Let us sing of our wondrous Savior who we can go to with all of our prayers, all of our needs. What a friend we have in Jesus. All our sins and griefs to bear. What a privilege to carry everything to God in God and Father, we thank you. We thank you for the church, your people, our brothers and sisters in Christ. You know us all and call us all by name. You made us and we are yours, the sheep of your pasture. Thank you for this local church, Desert Springs. Thank you for the gospel fruit that you in and through this body. Let that fruit continue to grow and multiply for your glory. Lord, we praise you for the new members who have joined our church. These five souls you have added to our family to share in our work 
worship, and witness. Thank you for their voices now added to the choir of our congregation, for their hearts being knit together with ours in life, learning, and love. Thank you for all the members of Desert Springs Church, these 515 souls that have covenanted together to display and protect the gospel. Though we are many members, we are one in Christ. May we always hold fast to our confession in faith as we live out our professions of faith. May we walk in a manner worthy of our calling with all humility and gentleness, with patience, bearing with one another in love, eager to maintain the unity of the spirit in the bond of peace. That we would be of the same mind and same judgment in Christ. Watch over your servants here, the members of this local body. Establish faithful families where fathers and mothers lead their families in worship. And by your spirit, they are rooted in the steadfast love of Christ. Deepen our understanding of the gospel through the work of the ministry done by every member. Strengthen our commitment to follow the way of Christ and keep us in the fullness of faith and in the consistent communion of this church. Cause us to bear fruit in every good work and grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. Father, guard us all from temptation and sin and deliver us from the evil one. May sin be sour and holiness sweet. Help us to be gracious and gentle with one another as you have been with us. Increase our compassion for others. Grow our love for neighbor. And then send us all out into the world to witness to your word and your worth. You have made us ambassadors to your kingdom. So help us represent you, our king, faithfully to the watching world. May we not be busy building our own kingdoms or concern ourselves too much with the kingdoms of this world, for they will pass away but your kingdom is forever. Multiply your grace and peace to us all. We call on you to keep your promise to build your church. Do it here, Father, at Desert Springs, for your name's sake and our good. In Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. Let us stand and continue in prayer through song.
Psalm 90 taught us, we pray you teach us to number our days that we might apply our hearts unto wisdom. And so with this day you've given us among our number, Lord, would you give us wisdom? Would you give us eyes to see from your word? Would you give us wisdom in the gospel? Would you give us wisdom to understand, apprehend, and further appreciate and praise our great Savior, Jesus? We thank you for such a great salvation as we have in him. Amen. You could be seated. Well, prayer is a curious thing, isn't it? For the unbeliever, prayer must seem simply absurd. The thought that a human being would voice words to a God that is unseen and expect that he hears, that he's there, that he cares, well, that seems absurd, fantastical, make-believe stuff for many. Some would think that prayer is nothing more than a crude, ancient coping mechanism. For the believer, prayer is often, well, an exercise of faith. It requires faith. It is true indeed that prayer is speaking to a God that we cannot now see. And most of us have never heard God audibly speak in return to us. So at times it doesn't feel like it is a two-way conversation that's happening. And you add to those dynamics our propensity to distraction and our inclination, especially these days, towards busyness and doing and getting things done, not to mention any feelings of guilt that get in the way of praying or feelings of inadequacy about our praying. And prayer is, of course, many times it's an exercise of faith. It takes faith. Sometimes it is, it is duty and discipline more than it is delight. And yet difficult and or mysterious as it is, prayer is not an option for Christians. It is not an option for God's people. Prayer is commanded of us even when we don't understand it, even when we don't feel adequate for it. Prayer is unthinkable privilege. It's unthinkable privilege. It's absurd from that angle then that we ever neglect prayer. 
that we get to freely, whenever we want, speak to the God of the universe and have his ear. He really listens. He really cares. He really acts. He not only tolerates our prayers, but he invites them and engages them. And prayer, even more than that, is undergirded with unthinkable promises of support. It's not only that we can come to him boldly in Christ, but but also this reality that the Holy Spirit helps our prayers, fixes our prayers, prays for us better prayers than we know to pray. That's all according to Romans 8. And so it's astounding that we don't pray. It's astounding we don't pray more. It's astounding to me that it's not more natural for me. It's astounding that it's ever discipline or duty and not just pure delight. And yet all these things are true. All these things are indeed real. It is unthinkable privilege and prayer is often difficult and neglected. The elders of Desert Springs believe that God has put it on our hearts to make a, a fresh commitment to prayer in 2021 and hopefully beyond. We believe we need to grow in prayer as a church and as individuals and families represented in this church. We believe we need to strengthen and stretch our prayer muscles. And besides, we need prayer as much as ever in these quirky and curious times we're in. We need to pray. We need God's help. And in God's providence, we've recently been in the book of Nehemiah, and it is a book filled with prayer. There's something like nine or ten different prayers in the book of Nehemiah. And so if we're going to emphasize prayer, if we're going to think about prayer, if we're going to stretch and strengthen our prayer muscles together as a church, it is good timing that we're in the book of Nehemiah these days. As we come to Nehemiah chapter 9 this week, we come to the longest prayer in the Bible. Yes, excluding the Psalms, which are prayer songs, excluding the Psalms, Nehemiah 9 records the longest prayer in the Bible. And what does the longest prayer in the Bible teach us? What does it emphasize and what does that tell us? How should this prayer shape us? Well, let's read Nehemiah to find out. Nehemiah 9. If you have a Bible, turn there. I'm going to read the whole chapter. It's long. It'll take about seven minutes for me to read the whole thing. But especially after last week on the heels of Nehemiah 8 and after that instruction and model on patient Bible reading, how could we not lean into a patient Bible reading from Nehemiah 9 this week? Here's what it says. Now on the 24th day of this month, the people of Israel were assembled with fasting and in sackcloth and with earth on their heads. And the Israelites separated themselves from all foreigners and stood and confessed their sins and the iniquities of their fathers. And they stood up in their place and read from the book of the law of the Lord their God for a quarter of the day, 
For another quarter of it, they made confession and worshipped the Lord their God. On the stairs of the Levites stood Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shabaniah, Bunai, Sherebiah, Bani, Chenani. And they cried with a loud voice to the Lord their God. Then the Levites, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Hashabniah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shabaniah, Pathahiah, said, Stand up and bless the Lord your God from everlasting to everlasting. Blessed be your glorious name, which is exalted above all blessing and praise. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven, the heaven of heavens, with all their host, the earth and all that is on it, the seas and all that is in them, and you preserve all of them, and the host of heaven worships you. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out of Ur of the Chaldeans and gave him the name Abraham. You found his heart faithful before you and made with him the covenant to give to his offspring the land of the Canaanite, the Hittite, the Amorite, the Perizzite, the Jebusite, and the Girgashite. And you have kept your promises, for you are righteous." And you saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry at the Red Sea and performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh and all his servants and all the people of his land. For you knew that they acted arrogantly against our fathers. And you made a name for yourself as it is to this day. And you divided the sea before them so that they went through the midst of the sea on dry land. And you cast their pursuers into the depths as a stone into mighty waters. By a pillar of cloud you led them in the day, and by a pillar of fire in the night to light for them the way in which they should go. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them from heaven, and gave them right rules and true laws, good statutes and commandments. And you made known to them your holy Sabbath, and commanded them commandments and statutes and a law by Moses your servant. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them out of the rock for their thirst. And you told them to go in to possess the land that you had sworn to give them. But they and our fathers acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But they stiffened their neck and appointed a leader to return to their slavery in Egypt. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love, and did not forsake them. Even when they had made for themselves a golden calf and said, This is your God who brought you up out of Egypt and had committed great blasphemies, you and your great mercies did not forsake them in the wilderness." The pillar of cloud to lead them in the way did not depart from them by day, nor the pillar of fire by night to light for them the way in which they should go. You gave your good spirit to instruct them and did not withhold your manna from their mouth and gave them water for their thirst. Forty years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. Their clothes did not wear out and their feet did not swell. And you gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner. So they took possessions of the land of Sihon, king of Heshbon, and the land of Og, king of Bashan. 
You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven, and you brought them into the land that you told their fathers to enter and possess. So the descendants went in and possessed the land, and you subdued before them the inhabitants of the land, the Canaanites, and gave them into their hand with their kings and the peoples of their land, that they may do with them as they would. And they captured fortified cities and a rich land, and took possession of houses full of good things, cisterns already hewn, vineyards, olive orchards, and fruit trees in abundance. So they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back and killed your prophets who had warned them in order to turn them back to you. And they committed great blasphemies. Therefore, you gave them into the hand of their enemies who made them suffer. And in the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them from heaven. And according to your great mercies, you gave them saviors who saved them from the hand of their enemies. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you, and you abandoned them to the hand of their enemies, so that they had dominion over them. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard from heaven, and many times you delivered them according to your mercies. And you warned them in order to turn them back to your law. Yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey your commandments, but sinned against your rules, which if a person does them, he shall live by them. And they turned a stubborn shoulder and stiffened their neck and would not obey. Many years you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through your prophets, yet they would not give ear. Therefore you gave them into the hand of the peoples of the lands." Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and the awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love, let not all the hardship seem little to you that has come upon us, upon our kings, our princes, our priests, our prophets, our fathers, and all your people since the time of the kings of Assyria until this day. Yet you've been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you've dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. Our kings, our princes, our priests, and our fathers have not kept your law or paid attention to your commandments and your warnings that you gave them. Even in their own kingdom and amid your great goodness that you gave them, in the large and rich land that you set before them, they did not serve you or turn from their wicked works. Behold, we are slaves this day in the land that you gave to our fathers to enjoy its fruit and its good gifts. Behold, we are slaves. And its rich yield goes to the kings whom you have set over us because of our sins. They rule over our bodies and over our livestock as they please, and we are in great distress. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing. On the sealed document are the names of our princes, our Levites, and our priests. Well, this chapter has three main parts to it. There's the setting before the prayer, verses 1 through 5. There's the actual prayer, the longest section, verse 5b to verse 37. And then there's a 
brief commitment or covenant that's made at the very end in verse 38. And it's obvious the second is the most important and certainly the longest of those sections. That'll take the longest of our time this morning. And so these are not equidistant points. If you're the type that takes notes with your watch readily available to see how this is going, just know we've got kind of a short point, a really long point, and then a really quick point, okay? Here's the kind of short point. Right at the beginning, it's the setting, or what we might call a concern for Bible in prayer. A concern for Bible and prayer. What happens in chapter 9 flows out of what just took place back in chapter 8. They go together. Recall, if you were with us, that chapter 8 records God's people hearing God's word read and explained and applied. It says they listened attentively. It also says that they wept because they understood the words which they heard. But they were soon told not to mourn, but to go and celebrate in light of God's mercies. All that happened on the first day of the seventh month, we're told. It was on the next day, the second day, that God's people rediscovered the Feast of Booths in the Bible. The Feast of Booths was that week-long reenactment of the Exodus story when God's people lived in tents in the wilderness and God provided for them miraculously and led them intimately. Now, what chapter 8 didn't explicitly mention is that the Feast of Booths was to take place, not the next day, not whenever you want, but on the 15th day to the 22nd day of the month. Our chapter begins on the 24th day of the month. So the Feast of Booths has just taken place, this week-long celebration of God's exodus provision and protection. And now, just with a day's break in between, they turn to the Bible in prayer. Verse 3 says, They read from the book of the law for a quarter of the day, that's three hours, and for another quarter of it, they made confession and worshiped the Lord their God. We'll see that the Bible of chapter 8, and the Bible prayer mingling at the beginning of chapter 9, leads into the long prayer that follows in the middle of chapter 9. The Bible and prayer go together. We see it throughout this chapter. We see it throughout the book of Nehemiah, we see it in passages like Psalm 119, the longest psalm. It's a prayer song about God's word. It's the subject of his prayer. It's what he's praying for more of, we could say. Throughout the Bible, it's like Bible and prayer are in a sustained ping-pong match back and forth. They feed one another. Not a ping-pong match in competition with each other, but serving each other. Well, throughout this prolonged reading of the Bible that they've had throughout this seventh month as God's people, they've learned to identify themselves with their forefathers. That's what they've been hearing about from God's word. They've been hearing not only God's commandments 
and being convicted about commands that they have neglected, commands that they have broken, but they've also been hearing the stories, the stories of God giving his word and his people disobeying his word. They've learned to identify with this long history of God's grace being displayed so brightly against the very dark backdrop of repeated sin and rebellion from God's people. I think that's why verse 2 says that they separated themselves from all foreigners and then gave themselves to confession and prayer. Now, that theme of distinguishing between Jews and non-Jews, that will become more significant, especially at the end of the book of Nehemiah. And there it gets more complicated than I believe it is here in chapter 9. In chapter 9, I think this separation from foreigners is simply because there are what are called proselytes in their mix, that is, Gentiles who've come to believe in Israel's God as the true and living God, and they've come to identify with this God and identify with his people in some ways. But this prayer of confession and repentance is uniquely tied to ethnic Israel and their sin. And of course, that means that ethnic Israel today, in the days of Nehemiah 9, had a unique and special identification with their forefathers. They weren't just spiritual forefathers, but even physical forefathers. Thus, they separate from the foreigners as they voice this confession. So all that's the setting. It's a people concerned for Bible and prayer, and we'll see that concern demonstrated in the rest of the chapter more than once. It's a concern which leads to, secondly, a prayer of confession and praise. And again, this is the longest prayer in the Bible. That's interesting, isn't it? It's a prayer which begins and ends with praise, not surprising, but its primary purpose and its longest theme by far is that of confession. Confession, that's the admission of guilt before God. The word confession isn't used in this chapter, but that's what's going on. That's what they're doing. To confess is to agree with God. The Greek word for confession that we find in the New Testament means literally to say the same thing. Homo logeo. Homo, same. Logeo, like logos, word, same word. There you go. So that's what Confession means to say the same, to agree with God about what he says about us. It's a historical prayer. It leans on what came before. It leans on Israel of old and God's interactions with them through centuries and millennia. As I've said already, it's a prayer of contrasts, right? Did you notice the the back and forth with the pronouns You, 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 referring to God and what he's done, what he's like. And then they, 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 referring to God's people of old and what they've done, what they've been like. Then back to you, 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 referring to God and his faithfulness. There's a contrast. God's 
astounding, unrelenting kindness, patience, faithfulness, forgiving in mercy, contrasted with his people's astounding, persistent waywardness, rebellion, forgetfulness, stubbornness. That, that big word juxtapose or juxtaposition is fitting for this. It's to, to put two things together alongside each other in contrast. So these themes are juxtaposed back and forth through several different eras of the Old Testament. Jim Hamilton in his commentary says that this is the fullest retelling of the Old Testament in the Old Testament. This is the Old Testament story in nugget form, piece by piece. And all that reminds us that God's word is one grand story made up of several acts and characters and scenes and ages or epics. There's similarity and difference. Now, rather than presume the parts of the story that are mentioned in this prayer and the precise language that's used throughout the prayer, I want us to actually ride the terrain of the prayer a little more carefully over these different epics or eras of God's plan so we can see and appreciate it ourselves. It starts with creation in verse 6. It's praise to God, the creator. You are the Lord, you alone. You have made heaven the heaven of heavens with all their hosts, the earth and all that is in it. That's where it must start. That's where God's word starts. In the beginning, God created. It then moves to Abraham, verses 7 to 8. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram. That's Genesis 12, where God gave him another name, Abraham. He was the father of a multitude, and he'll be the father of many multitudes with this new name. Verse 8 says, you've made with him the covenant to give his offspring the land. This promise of a people multiplied like the stars of the sky Blessed in a land that God gives to these descendants of Abraham. Well, that's, a, that's called the Abrahamic covenant. It's Genesis 12, repeated again in 15, and Genesis 17 as well. That's important, especially for a people who find themselves now back in the land, but with the land still being repaired. It's still in ruins. But before we get to that, Notice it fast forwards to the Exodus, verses 9 to 20, the longest section. It records events that we find in the book of Exodus. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry. You performed signs and wonders against Pharaoh. It goes on to describe God leading his people by a pillar of cloud in the day and fire by night. God giving them his word at Mount Sinai. God's provision of miraculous bread and water from the rock to sustain them. And it just keeps piling up. You, 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 you've been so gracious and faithful and initiating in your grace and mercy. 
You are the one who's been near to your people and there for them. But they, verse 16, but they stiffened their neck. To stiffen the neck is to act like a stubborn, uncooperative mule or cattle, or for that matter, perhaps like your dog. If you have a dog that doesn't obey and you go for a walk and you pull on the leash and it it feels the tug of the collar, but it eh, goes against it, it's stiff-necked. And God's people three times are called stiff-necked in this chapter. It just describes how it's gone for them. God's commandments are a kind guide around their neck and they just keep tugging on it and throwing it off and ignoring it. They refused to obey. They weren't mindful of the wonders that you performed among them, verse 17 says. These are people who not only read of the events of Exodus, they experienced them. They were on the receiving end of them and they quickly just ignored them. But you, verse 17, the second half, but you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. You did not forsake them because it's hitched to who God is. It's his very name. These words here are drawn from Exodus 34 where God revealed his full personal name to Moses. He is Yahweh, the God who is The God who is gracious and merciful, slow to anger, abounding in steadfast love. This is who he is. Well, then on to the days of Joshua, verses 22 to 25. And by the way, if you're a note taker, you might want to just put these bullet points under your point number two. Creation, verse 6. Abraham, verse 7 and 8. Exodus, verses 9 to 21, and now Joshua, verses 22 to 25. You gave them kingdoms and peoples and allotted to them every corner of this promised land. They inherited this promised land already rich with houses, let alone with fields and crops, They ate and were filled. They became fat. They delighted themselves in your great goodness, it says. Then it moves on to the era of Judges. The book of Judges, verses 26 to 29, cover the book of Judges. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled. And here's what you find in the book of Judges. In cycles, you find this over and over. God's people go astray. God puts them in some sort of trouble, some sort of distress. It gets bad enough that they cry out to God for help. He sends to them some sort of superhero savior, like Samson being one, and they are rescued. They're thankful for a moment, and then they get back to their sin. And like the label on the back of the shampoo bottle, wash, rinse, repeat, that's what they just keep doing. Disobey, ask for help, get rescued, go back to sin, wash, rinse, repeat. You skip centuries ahead to the later prophets, that's verses 30 and 31. These are the days of 
well, what we have in our Bibles as Isaiah to Malachi, or the events that you read about in First and Second Kings. Many years, verse 30 says, you bore with them and warned them by your spirit through prophets, yet they wouldn't give ear. Nevertheless, in your great mercies, you did not make an end of them or forsake them. This is the story of the Bible. Many stories. This is just a sampling. But the same recurring themes of God's astounding, unrelenting kindness, faithfulness, forgiveness, and mercy, and his people's astounding, persistent waywardness, forgetfulness, and stubbornness. Now, therefore, verse 32 and following, there's a final paragraph which moves us to the present tense for the people of Nehemiah 9. It turns to praise again in verse 32. Now, therefore, our God, the great, the mighty, and awesome God who keeps covenant. On that basis, they ask God for help in light of their present circumstances. Verse 32, let not all the hardship seem little to you that's come upon us. In other words, implied is Lord, have mercy on us. Once again, have mercy. Once again, we find ourselves in the same plight. Once again, Lord, we need your help. Once again, Lord, we need you to not hold us firmly to our sins forever. Have mercy. They confess, though, that God has been faithful and kind even in their great hardships of the 70-year exile and captivity in Babylon. And even now, in the days of the return to Jerusalem, which, well, this is a, a step forward, yes, but it's not all the way forward. You can see verse 36 and 37. They still, still see themselves in, in exile of sorts, no longer in exile geographically, but still slaves in their own land. Yeah, Judah doesn't have a king in these days. Their taxes still go to Assyria. They're in their own land, but still occupied by foreign rulers. They need God's help. And so they rehearse what it's been like throughout the centuries and how God has remained the same, faithful, kind, gentle, patient, forgiving. Now, we're not done with this section this point number two, because we've analyzed it, but we haven't applied it. We need to take some time to apply this prayer. If you're not yet a Christian, let me start with you. How, how does this prayer relate to you? Well, not directly, of course. You're not, a, you're not a Jewish man or woman in the days of Nehemiah. So you're not like Old Testament Israel in every way. You haven't experienced all the things described here, and neither really have your ethnic ancestors unless you're ethnically Jewish. But those that are described in the pages of Nehemiah 9 are there as a heightened example of a twofold reality that is true for all humanity. In other words... Even if you haven't experienced these specific events, and even if you haven't sinned in the exact same ways, it is true for all of us that God has been unthinkably, ridiculously kind and good to you. 
And you, like me, like us all, have been so dumb in response. I say that in all love. We have been so stupid spiritually and persistently so. If you say, well, God hasn't been that kind. I've had this problem and this problem and this problem and this problem. Yeah, I don't want to minimize how hard your life has been. Certainly some of us have really had some significant hardship. But as, as Caleb said to begin our service, we could all be in hell right now. And you're not. This morning you woke up, the sun rose on both the just and the unjust. That is, those who are right with God and those who aren't. Those who acknowledge him and those who don't care about him. Green chili and gooey quesadillas taste the same for you if you reject the God who gives those great gifts to you as those who enjoy those things to his glory and give him thanks. God has been unthinkably, ridiculously kind and good and patient and you have not been in return and this is proven by the fact, if nothing else, forget like whether there is sin and whether you've done specific sins and whether those specific things are sins or not. The simple fact that we enjoy all of God's good gifts to us without any credit to him is a proven mark of our fallenness. It's a proven mark that we're just like Israel. We get, we get, we get and we turn away from him again and again. In fact, God has been even more gracious to you than the people of Nehemiah 9 could have recorded. Nehemiah is one of the last books of Old Testament times. It's not last in our Bibles just because of how the canon works and certain kinds of books are put near certain kinds of books. But it's the last historical book and it certainly records uh, a season that is nearing the end of the Old Testament, awaiting the New Testament, awaiting the Savior. That's what the New Testament's all about. Not a Savior, but the Savior shows up. His name is Jesus. God saves, for he will save his people from their sins. That's important. This is why Jesus was born. This is why he had to go to the cross. Nehemiah 9 is not enough. They're praying for God to act at that time to give mercy, to show mercy, to give grace at that season. And he did. And more. Years to come, he would give even more. That's what the cross is all about. You see, the question could rightly be put to a passage like Nehemiah 9. Can God just keep forgiving and forgiving and forgiving? Will he? How do we know? And can God be so unswervingly merciful and still be good and right and just? Well, Romans 3 describes the answer to those kind of questions. God, in his great and glorious plan, eventually put forward Jesus as a payment for sins that God would be proven to be 
just and the justifier. The righteous one and the redeemer. Not a kind of redeemer that sweeps sin under the rug, that just keeps looking the other way, the other way because he's such a softy. But a just and righteous God that eventually paid for all the sins that he would ever forgive. Old Testament sins were passed by, you could say, overlooked for a time, you could say. There was forbearance in the language of Romans 3, but it's as if each sin just had an IOU waiting at the justice desk of God for Christ to pick up and pay for upon the cross. God now in Christ is just and justifier. So all the more reason, non-Christian, why you can't just keep going and rejecting him and ignoring him. He has been so merciful, so salvific, so, so great a redeemer. Don't reject him, but receive this mercy and be reconciled to him. Receive the culmination of all that forgiveness and mercy and patience from of old and in your own life. To receive his mercy, it simply means that you believe that Jesus really died on the cross for sins, not just died, but for sins. And then you confess. Confess. You don't have to confess all your sins. You don't have to be as thorough as those in Nehemiah 9 were. A man in Luke 18 was justified by simply praying, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That covers the basis. God must be merciful to sinners, and he is in Jesus Christ. Tell him that if you've come to believe that, and you will be saved, reconciled. Forgiven for good. Forgiven for good. Not up to now. Not a, I hope he keeps being nice. But proven mercy and kindness on account of Jesus who said it is finished when he breathed his last. Christian, hasn't God been so kind to you his loving kindness is over all his works. He has been so kind to you in Christ. God so loved you that he gave his only son to the cross that you, you would just believe in him and you would have eternal life. Have you gotten used to that? Are, are you too familiar with that? Is it just something you assume? Of course God is merciful. Of course he's forgiving. We already know that. We already have that established. No. May we never think that. May we never lose the wonder and awe of our salvation. And yet we know there are ups and downs. David could say, restore unto me the joy of your salvation. And many of us need to join him in praying that today. Christian, have you begun to doubt whether hardships in your life are anything but his mercy? Have you began to doubt him? You know, just like the exile was good for God's people in the Old Testament as a 
a means of discipline that he might show his love and restore them. Who knows how worse off you would be, spiritually speaking, if God in years past or even this year had not pruned the branches of your spiritual life. I don't know how much worse off you'd be or I'd be, but I know we would be worse if God didn't bring hardship into our lives. It's the way he worked. He's good. He's good in it all. His loving kindness is over all his works. If you're a Christian who finds yourself in a season of waywardness, maybe giving in to habitual sin, perhaps now in a time where you don't even bring it before God, it's too touchy in your mind to bring that habitual long-time sin before God. Perhaps you're finding it hard to come back to him. Have you forgotten what kind of God this is? what kind of God we're dealing with, he is ready to forgive. Just turn back to him. You don't fix yourself up to come back to him. Your demolished spiritual state is your ready state to return to him. He's ready and welcoming. He doesn't welcome you back with tisk tisk, but with loving open arms. He loves to welcome back his wayward children, just like the prodigal son was welcomed back by his father. First John is so appropriate here. If we say that we don't have sin, well, you don't have eternal life. And you make God out to be a liar. But if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. We learn that through the narrative and prayer of Nehemiah 9. Let this prayer shape you, let it shape your prayers. Perhaps you've heard of praying through the acronym ACTS, A-C-T-S. Adoration, or praise, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, or petition. Most of us pray a little bit of praise, but then we get on with our petitions, things we ask of God. Praying acts, adoration, confession, thanksgiving, supplication will help us pray more well-roundedly. How's the confession part going? Did you notice that we as a church, we weekly confess that we're sinners together? We don't always do it the same way. This week we prayed something out loud in unison together. We confessed our sins together. Sometimes we'll do it through a song. Sometimes someone else will read something that leads us in confessing. It's part of our worship service every week, and it must be. It must continue to be. How's confession going in your private prayers? I found it surprising the longest prayer in the Bible has as its most prominent feature, confession. The only supplication is very brief. Look upon our hardship. I have more than two dozen books on prayer on my shelves, and curiously, none of them had a whole chapter devoted to confession. 
Now, something's askew there. Who am I to blame them? I didn't write any books on prayer. I'm not going to write the next book on prayer to have a chapter on confession. But, but something's askew if two dozen good books on prayer don't have one of 12 or 20 chapters devoted to confession. So I suspect that we Christians in general, this church specifically, me specifically, perhaps you as well, we need to grow in our instincts for and our comfort level with confession. We don't have to confess all our sins to each other. At least that's not what this message is about. That's James 5. That's for another time. It doesn't have to be as thorough as Nehemiah 9, but why not? We need to confess that we're sinners. And if you even doubt that, let me just establish why we confess sin as Christians who are forgiven of those sins already. Well, it's because we're still sinners. It's because we still sin. We still need to keep agreeing with God, say the same thing as what he says about what we've just done, about where we are without his grace. You see, confession is fundamental to our faith. It is fundamental to the gospel. It's fundamental that we keep believing that we are people who are still in need of the gospel. The gospel is still the medicine that we need as sinners. We need to confess our sins before God because apparently this is pretty fundamental to the Bible. This is the story of the Bible. God is faithful, you're not, but he's forgiving and he wants to bring you in closer to himself that you might be more like him. So lean on the Bible for your prayers. Let the prayers of the Bible shape and fuel your own prayers. And when you have not words to say to God, use the actual words of the Bible in prayer as your own prayer. Isn't God kind that we can do that? Didn't the people of Nehemiah 9 lean heavily upon all the Old Testament Bible reading that they had been hearing over those days? They just simply put it in their prayer process and prayed those things. We'll do the same. If necessary, pray very words like those in Nehemiah 9 or, or, or other confessions. Psalm 32, Psalm 38, Psalm 51, Psalm 130. I, I know those references off the top of my head because I need to go to those places when I know I need to do business with the Lord and I find my heart too dry to muster up decent words of my own. Lean in the Bible. Now thirdly, I said briefly, and I mean it. Thirdly, there's a fresh commitment to obey. That's in light of all this. It's in light of their concern for the word and prayer, in light of what they've been learning from the word throughout this month, in light of what they've prayed in praise and confession. Now there's a fresh commitment to obey in verse 38. Because of all this, we make a firm covenant in writing, a sealed document, a promise. 
It's a fresh resolve here to obey God in light of his astounding, persistent grace. Now we'll come back to this verse, verse 38, next week. Since it just as easily goes with chapter 10 as it does with chapter 9. But for now, just take note of this gospel instinct. This gospel result. When we encounter the word of God and it shows us the holiness and faithfulness of God and shows us our unfaithfulness before this faithful, holy God, but then shows us God's mercy afresh, reminds us again that God is astoundingly, persistently, doggedly merciful to you proven in Christ forever and ever. Well, how can you do anything other than want to obey him, follow him, honor him? And the grace of God changes people. It changes people, especially in Christ. We'll talk about that next week. God's grace, especially in Christ, it changes a person. This is Romans 12. Romans 1 through 11 describes the gospel from all these different facets. This is what is true of Christians. This is what they have. This is what the gospel has done. Romans 12, 1, Therefore, by the mercies of God, present yourselves, your bodies, as living sacrifices unto God. This is your reasonable service to God. And the rest of the book of Romans unpacks that living sacrifice that's in light of God's mercy so thoroughly described in Romans 1 through 11. But you got to get the order right. you got to get the logic right. It's that God's grace changes sinners. It's not that people who change themselves will one day earn God's grace. It's not that. It's God's grace but grace that changes. Not perfectly. That's why we're still sinners. That's why we still confess. That's why God is still merciful. And it's good to know he's not done with us. His grace is greater than our sin. It's grace that not only cleanses, but also changes. Let's pray. Lord, we pray that your grace would spread in this place. It would hit those who haven't before encountered it in Christ, haven't yet put their faith in him. Perhaps today would be that day. And we pray that that grace, on account of their confession of Christ and confession of their sin, they would be changed and they would join us in giving praise to you, a God so merciful, a pardoning God. There is none like you. We thank you for this great gospel hope and pray in our Savior's name. Amen. Let us stand and respond. Come ye sinners, poor and needy, weak and wounded, sick, Jesus ready stands to save you.
and we are not. But the good news is that he welcomes sinners to himself. He welcomes those who know they can't clean themselves up to come. They must simply rely on his mercy and that mercy shown specifically in Christ upon the cross. If you haven't yet come to believe that, if you're not yet a Christian, we would love to help you. The message has come. But I know sometimes you can be sort of caught in the middle. Okay, I heard about this praying like the man in Luke 18. God, be merciful to me, a sinner. Is that it? Is that that all it takes? We've got some questions today. I'll be up front afterwards. I'm here for you. Others will be as well up front available to you to pray, to talk, to answer questions you might have about our Savior. Well, Christians, let's, uh, well, let's go from this place happy in the Lord. But first, let's uh, look on the screens here. Drew prayed for our five new members already that were affirmed at our last members meeting. Here are their names and faces. We want you to see them and put names with faces. Uh, normally, apart from a COVID era, we would have them up front and you would come up and just barrage them with handshakes and hugs. We won't do that today, but look for these people and welcome them and pray for them. Let's pray for each other in 2021 and beyond. If you're not a member of this church, but you're interested in exploring that, we have a membership class coming up. We call it Knowing Christ, Knowing the Church. It happens this coming Friday evening and Saturday morning. We'd love for you to join us. It doesn't mean by coming that you're committed to joining this church. You might still have questions. You might still be exploring. Well, this is a class for that, for exploring, for you getting to know us a little bit better. If you want to do that class, you need to register for it online or on the app, uh, if you have that on your phone. I close with this benediction from Romans 16, where Paul says, Now to him who is able to strengthen you according to the gospel. 
strengthen you according to the gospel, to the only wise God, be glory forevermore through Jesus Christ. Amen.